And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You'd have to say Andrew Yang is something of a phenomenon in this 2020 campaign, a social entrepreneur not widely known two years ago. He improbably leaped into the race and has built a following across the country, largely of young people, but not exclusive uh, to them, the Yang Gang, as they call themselves. Uh, And who would have thought that Yang would outlast names like Kamala Harris and others who have run and left the race already as he continues on his views on automation and what we should do in response to the changes in our economy have made him a unique voice in this race, as he demonstrated in this conversation we had earlier today before an audience at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. So, welcome. I have to tell you that running down the aisle, as you just did, doesn't translate as well on podcasts as it does in the, as it does in the room. But, uh, but welcome. I have to say, two years ago, you were a highly regarded but not very well-known social entrepreneur. Uh, and now... Completely anonymous. And now you are... Now you are... A, uh, a, a uh, candidate for president of the United States. You have your own gang. They're here in force. Um, and I want to talk about that journey and about where you've come from and where you, uh, where you hope to go. Uh, but before I do, there's a little bit of breaking news that I want to uh, cover, and that is that this morning, Speaker Pelosi announced that she's going to formally move forward uh, on articles of impeachment that the House will move uh, forward. What, what was, uh, what's your reaction to that news? It's not terribly surprising, and yet it seems of historic moment. Uh, it is historic, and moving forward with impeachment proceedings is the right thing. I do want to say that we should not have any illusions about the most likely outcome unless approximately two dozen Republican senators change their minds uh, when it goes to trial in the Senate. Right now, unfortunately, there have been no Republicans that have seemed like they're in fact-finding mode. They're more in obstructionist and defend the president mode. To me, the biggest drawback of impeachment is that Donald Trump is a creature who thrives on attention. And impeachment is attention, even if it seems like it's bad for him, he's winning. We have to take every opportunity to make our case for a more positive vision for the country that Americans can get excited about. That's how we're going to beat him in 2020, and that's how we move the country forward after he's gone. You said uh, a few weeks ago that you thought that it's possible that impeachment might actually hurt the Democrats. Is that what you were speaking of? What, what, made you, what makes you feel that way? That is exactly what uh, I was uh, talking about, because the media oxygen is all flowing through uh, Congress and impeachment right now. And so if there are people in the field, they're going to be asked about impeachment very consistently, and that's a missed opportunity to, again, create a new way forward for the country. Do you think, what do you think the impact is of, of an impeachment that is likely to go forward, a, the result you suggest will happen in the Senate, a partisan vote in both uh, bodies, and, and then we move on? Does that uh, increase cynicism in the country? Does it increase Uh, Unfortunately, it increases polarization because if impeachment's unsuccessful, you can already see Donald Trump crowing about it. You can see him saying, totally exonerated. It was a witch hunt, just like I said all along. And the people that support Donald Trump will be like, I knew it. This was all a a giant distraction and waste. And then other people will say, like, I knew it. The Republicans put party before country. So... The result, unfortunately, is likely to be increased polarization, and it's going to be all, uh, all the harder to bring the country together. Let me ask you, as you travel around, how much does impeachment actually come up in, when you do town hall meetings and uh, talk with voters? I talk to voters uh, 
just about every single day, thousands of conversations. I cannot recall a single question about impeachment. I've gotten questions about everything else under the sun, healthcare, climate change, uh, education, but never an impeachment question. And why do you think that is? I think Americans are tired of a particular narrative, and they're more interested in what's happening in their own homes and communities and with their families. When, when they meet me, they want to know how I'm going to help improve their way of life, um, which is the way it should be. That should be what we're talking about. Yeah. It does make this whole impeachment thing kind of abstract, though, and it probably shouldn't be abstract. Uh, we're in a constitutional democracy. It's a pretty significant issue, and yet it's seen, I think, by many people as just another extension of Washington politics. It is unfortunate, and again, it's not the norm for the party of the president who's going through impeachment to not want to know what happened. Like, ordinarily, you would be in fact-finding mode. You'd say, okay, let's discover what these allegations are about and whether uh, there's truth in them, but that does not seem to be the Republican approach. We kind of know what happened, I think. Don't yeah, we? I think most Americans agree on the basic facts. They're very believable. Uh, they're very well substantiated. Uh, and so that isn't what the disagreement's about fundamentally. So speaking of families, let's talk about yours. Uh, your folks came from Taiwan. Uh, tell me about them and their, their story. Now, my parents met as graduate students at UC Berkeley. Uh, my brother is named after the Lawrence Observatory, so we used to joke that my parents must have had a good time at the observatory. <laughs> uh, I was born in a town called Schenectady, New York. Uh, my father is a physicist who generated 69 U.S. patents for GE and IBM, so I grew up a very nerdy Asian kid uh, who was just trying to do well in school, uh, child of immigrants, and so you have the sense that you have to uh, find your place through hard work. Yeah, I want to ask you about your experience. Just one more question on theirs. They didn't come from pros prosperous beginnings. Uh, talk about how they went from there to here. Now, my father grew up on a peanut farm with no floor. And when I saw it as a teenager, teenager I was like, no way you grew up here. <laughs> like, that's nuts. And uh, <laughs> uh, so he got there through education. Uh, he did well at National Taiwan University and then did well enough to get uh, his PhD in physics from Berkeley. Um, but it just demonstrated the power of the American dream and how fast you can climb in one generation if you have the right qualities. Yeah, I'm the son of an immigrant as well. That story, though, is pretty germane right now because immigration is very much uh, an issue that's on the ballot in this election. When you, you must look at this issue through the lens of your own family's experience, and you mentioned your father uh, was responsible for 69 patents. That's value added for the country. When I was old enough to figure out what a patent was, I went to my dad and was like, how much money do you get when you generate a patent? And I was expecting it to be, you know, like Boku bucks. Uh, and then he said, $250 or so. And I was like, that's not that much. And then he said, but I also get a salary so I can feed, house, and clothe you and your brother. And then I said, oh, <laughs> I understand how this works. So, uh, so yeah, I think it was a massive value add for the country and a value add for my family, obviously. Uh, to me, one of the most important ingredients of U.S. competitiveness moving forward is whether we continue to serve as a magnet for people around the world to say, this is where I want to get my education and also build a life, a career, and a business. If we lose that battle, we're going to lose uh, big time. You talk about being a nerdy Asian kid. You grew up in the suburbs of New York. Uh, what was your experience uh, like there, and were, were there disadvantages to being uh, a nerdy Asian kid? Well, it certainly felt like there were a lot of disadvantages at the time. <laughs> uh, I'd skipped a grade, so I was extra scrawny. Uh, braces, they hadn't invented thin glasses yet, so I had the big, thick ones. Yeah. Uh, so That's rough, you're painting a rough picture here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I felt out of place, and uh, like I needed to prove my Americanness uh, all the time. 
Were you, were, were, were you victimized at all? Uh, were you singled out? Were you bullied? You'd call it bullying now, I believe. Uh, I, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was called racial epithets uh, semi-regularly, um, and uh, I got into a number of fights, which I generally lost. Judging on how you described yourself, I, I'm not surprised to hear that you mean, news. You mean, the, yeah, the junior high school students were quaking with fear when, like, yanked, <laughs> rode by. No, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't happening. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, the reason I raise it is um, sort of how that impacted on you. And it's sort of interesting to me now because you've been criticized at times for, you know, your, your slogan and the math uh, lapel pin. And you made a joke in, a, in, in a, a debate about knowing a lot of doctors because you're Asian. And, uh, and you were actually attacked for stereotyping. I think Americans recognize a joke when they hear it. Uh, I also think that these stereotypes uh, seem more ridiculous when you drag them into the light. Uh, and I'm very, very proud of being the first Asian American man to run for president as a Democrat. And I think many people are. Thank you. For those in the podcast, it's, it's uh, some non-Asians clapping too. If I... <laughs> Well, they'll um, never know anyway. So, um, so the, uh, uh, but uh, do you, you know, you say Americans know, uh, understand a joke. Are we, have we become too severe about these things? Have we become uh, humorless uh, in trying to be politically correct about these things? I believe we have become unduly punitive and in some cases even vindictive. Uh, and, and someone put it to me like this where if someone makes a misstatement and then we respond with outrage and they lose their job, a week later, most of us have forgotten about it. We're not outraged anymore, but the person still lost their job. <laughs> like the consequences don't necessarily match up uh, to the error, uh, particularly when we're all human, we all make mistakes. We should respond with a higher degree of grace and forgiveness uh, when someone else evinces their own humanity. How much, uh, how much of this is driven by social media? Uh, and how much has that kind of exacerbated that problem? It's exacerbated it a great deal. And uh, one of the pioneers of the internet, Jaron Lanier, said that negative sentiment spreads much more quickly and powerfully on the internet and social media than positive sentiment. And that this uh, outrage culture is a symptom of that. Yeah. You, uh, you, you were into music, uh, or at least the legend is that you were into music. I was into music, sure. And well, into... Tell, tell about the music that you were into. Uh, I have an ulterior motive here, but go ahead. Oh, sure. So here's the evolution, like nerdy Asian kid, like growing up in the 80s and 90s. So what did I listen to? The Cure, Depeche Mode, The Smiths. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so I got all angsty and broody and was like, oh, life is so hard, I'm so deep. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so those are the bands uh, I was into. And uh, I grabbed Morrissey's wrist once at a concert. Like I, I, uh, my first time crowd surfing was not just a couple months ago, it's been that way. I, I, I crowd surfed uh, when I was a teenager. You went to Lollapalooza, right? I went to the first three Lollapalooza. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was good fun. The reason I raise it is we've got this jukebox ballot thing going here. We're asking people to submit a protest song that influenced them or a political song that influenced them and tell us why. So we're going we're gonna to dog you to be a, an entrant in this, happily, uh, happily. In this uh, contest. I won't, you won't have to, I'll give you time to think about it. You don't have to give me an answer here. Halfway through high school, you were in a public high school in Summers, is that the name of your? Summers, yeah. Uh, you, uh, you, you went to Exeter. Yes. Uh, why did you do that? Why did you make that move? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, there, there, there are some Exeter people here. I, I meant to ask you that in private. Uh, not at all. So I went to Nerd Camp in the Summers, run by Johns Hopkins University. It's called CTY. And there's some CTYers here. 
is a mess. You took this. You took the. They had you take the SATs at 12. Yeah, they had me take the SATs when I was very young, and uh, I did well enough to qualify for the summer program. So I was at the summer program, and a friend of mine there went to Exeter and said, "I go to Exeter. I like it." I was like, "What is this Exeter you speak of?" And then I <laughs> found out a little bit more about it. And a lot of it was that I was somewhat competitive with my brother who was going away to college. He's two years older. And so I thought, well, my brother's going away to school. I should go away to school too. Uh, and because I'd skipped a grade, I was only 15. So I was like, I'm going to be stuck at home without a car. Because uh, my brother These was are driving me around. These are practical like we were, considerations. Yeah. yeah, we were like driving around being cool. And then I was about to get stranded at home when my brother took off to college. So I was like, this is not a good look. So. Uh, so I asked my parents, <laughs> I, I, I'll still remember my mom's reaction. I remember I come back from CTY, I go to my mom and say, hey mom, what do you think about my going away to a boarding school called Exeter? And she almost jumped for joy. <laughs> I was like, holy cow. She's been like looking for ways to ship me off uh, without me knowing it. So she got so excited. And then I was like, wow, I thought that was going to be a different conversation. Uh, and so I spent the last two years of high school in New Hampshire. And then uh, you went to Brown. You went to Col My goodness. Uh, you do know this is the University of Chicago, right? Uh, then you, uh, you, you went on to uh, uh, Columbia Law School, and you went to work for a law firm, and those were not the best five months of your life, apparently. Oh. Uh, so I worked for a big corporate law firm doing M&A transactions, and I, I saw, I was like, am I going to spend my 20s trying to think of the worst things that could happen to build them into long contracts, or am I going to try and get out there and do something uh, and I thought to myself, I'm in my 20s. It's not going to get any easier to take a risk. I should try and leave uh, to make something of myself. So I left the firm after five months, in part because I saw my brain was rewiring to become a better corporate attorney. And so there were two things I thought. One, I don't want to do this job forever. And two, uh, it's going to get harder to leave, not easier. And so I thought, well, if these two things are true, I should leave immediately. So I left very quickly. And when you said make something of yourself, what, 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 what in your mind constituted making something of yourself? Well, the internet had just arrived. Uh, and so I left to co-found a company called Stargiving.com that did fundraising campaigns for celebrity-affiliated nonprofits. It was super wholesome. It was like a marriage between uh, freerice.com. I don't know if any of you remember that, if that still exists, <laughs> uh, and celebrity-affiliated giving. And so that's what I meant by making something of myself. I thought, wow, if I could solve a really big problem and channel millions of dollars to nonprofits, like I should definitely do that. And the idea than... was to sort of multiply their fundraising power without them having to run, run off to events. And... Exactly, because if you're a celebrity, you donate a meet and greet at a fundraising event, you'll generate a certain amount of money. So the idea was, well, you can generate a lot more money if you take that online. Uh, so that's what I left the firm to do. Of course, none of this worked out. None of yeah, that's, like... that's what I want to ask you about it. It, it, it sort of didn't work out. You, got, you, you ran out of dough. You, it kind of crashed and burned. Oh, yeah. It definitely crashed and burned. My parents told their friends I was still a lawyer. because they're yeah. like, oh, well, that, but, but seriously, Andrew, I want to ask you about this. You were a guy who was a high achiever. You came from a family of high achievers. Yep. This was a failure. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and how, how did you process failure? With great difficulty, David. Uh, so one of the comments I made on the debate stage was, the secret to entrepreneurship is this. Tell everyone you know you're going to do something, because then you have no choice but to do it. Because anytime you talk to them, they'll be like, hey, what about that thing you were starting? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm about to do that. So then when you fail, it's 100% public, because everyone you know knew you were trying to build this company, and you asked all of them for help. And then when it goes kaput and you lose people their investment, uh, it, it's devastating. It was very, very hard for me. What did you learn from it? Well, I learned that building something is very, very hard. Uh, it takes more time uh, and capital and know-how and wherewithal and relationships than I had at that point. Um, but I was also invigorated by the process where trying to build something you cared about was essentially the polar opposite of sitting in a law firm cubicle working on someone else's deal documents. And so even with the failure and the hurt, 
I vividly remember lying on the floor, looking up at the ceiling, being like, you know, I can't believe it's come to this. Like, I still owed $100,000 in law school loans. Uh, I used to call my debt load my mistress because uh, I was, like, supporting a family in another town. I was like, uh, I, was like I hope Sally Mae's having a good life over in... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so it was, it was a tough time, um, but I thought, well... I need to try and get better at this, and how do I do that? So I worked for a more experienced entrepreneur as his lieutenant for four years, uh, and then during that four-year time period, I, I got not just some experience, but also my confidence grew because I saw what I didn't know the first time. You, you became ultimately the CEO of Manhattan Prep, which was this uh, testing. Uh, talk about that, how you fell into that, or how you chose to do it. I shouldn't say, shouldn't make it a negative. You didn't fall into it. You... No, no, it's, uh, I mean, it certainly wasn't part of some grand plan. You know, so my, my company dies, I'm looking around. Um, a friend of mine has started this test prep company, Manhattan Prep, uh, and asked me to join as the first instructor and help write the curriculum. So I did these things, but I did them as a side gig in addition to working at this healthcare technology startup because I'd been so devastated by the failure of my company that I thought, well, my next company could fail too, so I should have some kind of side hustle. So uh, teaching the GMAT was one side hustle, and then throwing parties uh, at nightclubs was the third side hustle. <laughs> you really diversified there. Yeah. Well, what happened was I had a birthday party, and all these people uh, I didn't know showed up, and they drank a lot. Uh, and so I said, maybe I can do something with this. Uh, so, so then I did it again the next month, and once again, a lot of people I didn't know showed up and drank yeah. a lot. You had so a birthday party every month? And I was like, wow. That is a hustle. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew's getting old in an awful hurry. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, but talk about the testing. Uh, you know, because... Uh, one of the things that occurs to me is testing has become very important uh, in terms of getting into schools like this. Way too important. That's what I want to ask. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm a graduate of Stuyvesant High School in New York. Oh, my. I knew I would get that reaction. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you probably have seen the controversy about Stuyvesant because yes. um, it is not a diverse school student body anymore. I think they admitted seven or eight African-American students out of a entry class of 800 yeah. or something. And it was all based on one test. Yep. And if you have the resources to uh, engage with a firm like yours around those tests, you have an advantage in getting in. Doesn't necessarily predict your worth as a student or your value down the line. And it, it, seems, uh, it seems like we're over overly reliant on these tools. I couldn't agree more. We originated the SAT during World War II as a means to identify which kids we did not want to send to the front lines. Think about that. And now we use it every year as a sorting mechanism, like every year is wartime. Uh, and it's deforming our classrooms, it's making our, our teachers teach in certain ways that they know are not in the best interests of our students. They do not measure human worth or character in any way. Uh, they more likely correspond to the socioeconomic status of your, your parents and a couple of other qualities. So we should de-emphasize these standardized tests at every level and evaluate people much more holistically. Mm -hmm. Do you think testing has a role? This is one of the big debates you know, that we've seen nationally. <laughs> well, so people here didn't applaud because you were like, I studied really hard for that test. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure you all did very well because, you know, this, this is the University of Chicago. Yes. But we can do better to figure out what people are worth. Um, you, you, you sold that business, did well, and then you went into, uh, you, you, you created Venture for America. Talk about Venture for America and what the concept was behind that. This is going to be germane to the students here in the room. If you go to a school like the University of Chicago, there's an 80% chance you're gonna do one of six things in six places, and you know what they are. <laughs> Finance, consulting, law, tech, academia, uh, or medicine in Chicago, New York, Seattle, LA, San Francisco, or DC. So go forth and be productive. 
<laughs> um, so 2009, the financial crisis unfolds, and I look up and say, I think I know partially why this happened. Because a lot of the smart people I went to Exeter and Brown and Columbia with went to Wall Street and helped devise the mortgage-backed securities and the exotic financial instruments that helped crash the economy. And so you think, okay, what a train wreck that is. Like, what's the purpose of trying to produce these talented people if they're going to do something that destructive? So I thought, well, what would you want people's energies to be devoted to if you could draw it up? And I thought I would love to see young people head to cities like Detroit or Cleveland or Baltimore or St. Louis or Birmingham or New Orleans and help grow businesses or even start businesses. So I quit my job, I donated some money to start a nonprofit, Venture for America, and I called rich friends with this question, do you love America? The smart among them said, what does it mean if I say yes to this question? <laughs> uh, and then I said, at least $10,000. <laughs> and then 12 of them said, I love America for $10,000. I was like, I thought you did. Uh, uh, but I started Venture for America in part as a response to the forces that you all are experiencing here at the University of Chicago. When you showed up here day one, you had no idea what management consulting was. Now you can actually differentiate between firms. You're like, I'm more of a Bain person myself. <laughs> you know, so, so. <laughs> so how the heck did that happen? You know, like you didn't dream, you didn't come here with these dreams, um, but these dreams are pushed upon you because the market now dominates our society to that extent. And to me, if the market dominated where our talent and energy was going, we were going to destroy ourselves. So I thought, well, let's try and find a more positive path for our young people who want to do something good. Uh, and I'm very proud of the work that Venture for America continues we'll to do. We'll talk a little bit about it. What, what has resulted from it? We've helped create about 3,000 new jobs in 15 cities over the last seven years. Our mutual friend, Barack Obama, uh, honored me at the White House. Yes, I remember. Uh, a couple of times. <laughs> Uh, so I got to bring my wife to meet the president. Uh, my in-laws were really excited about me for about a week. They were like, saw the pictures. <laughs> uh, and I learned a lot during the seven years of starting and running Venture for America. I saw this incredible uh, idealism and energy in action as we helped create these several thousand jobs. But I also had this sinking feeling that our work was like pouring water into a bathtub that had a giant hole ripped in the bottom because many of these communities were losing many more jobs than they were creating uh, at a scale that was staggering to me, where if you fly between St. Louis and San Francisco or Michigan and Manhattan, you felt like you were traversing decades or dimensions or ways of life and not just a few time zones. Uh, and this is what gave me the perspective to run for president after Donald Trump won in 2016, because it was clear to me that the reason why he won was that we'd blasted away four million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Missouri, Wisconsin, the swing states he needed to win and did win. And what we did to those jobs, we're now doing to retail jobs, call center jobs, fast food jobs, truck driving jobs, and on and on through the economy. It's hard to be celebrated as Mr. Entrepreneur, Mr. Job Creation, when you feel like the changes are destroying communities much, much faster than any of the positive work you're doing. Uh, it was a very hard lesson. Before we, we, we leave Venture for America, uh, Recode wrote a, a, a critical piece and said you had set this goal of 100,000 jobs by 2025 and you'd only created, I think they, they gave you credit for 4,000, so. Um, Look at that, I was conservative in my estimate. Exactly, which is an honest politician. And, uh, and, and uh, they said half the young people who had uh, gone to serve had moved from the cities to which uh, they were sent. Um, how, do you, how do you respond to the critique? First, I'd say it's not 2025 yet. <laughs> Second, I would say we should be incredibly proud of the 4,000 plus jobs and counting that we've helped create and that half, people, half of the people that went to these cities did stay. But bigger picture, if we're going to make things work for communities around the country, we are going to have to rewrite the rules of the 21st century economy in fundamentally different ways. And that's why I'm running for president. By the way, if you, if you have a birthday every month, it may be 2025. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. By now. Um, I want to talk to you about I could be as old as some of the other candidates. 
By the way, now that you bring it up, should that be a concern? <laughs> you do have, uh, well, I mean, you know, come on, man, you walked right through the door. What I would suggest is that we need to be laser focused on solving the real problems on the ground that got Donald Trump elected. And many of those problems stem from the fact that technology is fundamentally transforming our labor force and our way of life. Amazon alone, trillion dollar tech companies absorbing $20 billion in business every single year, paying zero in taxes while doing it, and closing 30% of America's stores and malls. While being a retail clerk is the number one job in the country still, the average retail clerk is a 39-year-old woman making between $9 and $10 an hour. These are the real changes that are devastating communities, and it's going to be difficult to solve these problems if you don't actually understand them. Okay, so you wound around to answering my question. The, 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 the question was, so is it your feeling that if you're, in your, if you're nearing your 80th birthday that you might not have command of these forces? I don't think you will have experienced them as directly, uh, particularly if you've been in an environment, let's call it Washington, D.C., uh, where... Just to where, pick one at random. Where your, where your incentives in everyday lives are very, very different, uh, and also your town generally is uh, 25 years behind the curve in technology because you got rid of the Office of Technology Assessment in 1995. Mm -hmm. The... Uh, <laughs> uh, let's, let's talk about this, this, this issue of uh, technology because uh, I've always, you know, I've been a strong believer in this as being a real challenge, the, the, the march of technology, the uh, mechanization of more and more jobs. It's something you, you've written a whole book on this, uh, The War on Normal People. All right, let me just plug done. Okay, let me check this out. Uh, but, uh, but uh, and you raised this in the debate because it really hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It struck me it didn't get a lot of attention in 2016. It didn't in 2020. A lot of the focus is on, on trade and the impact uh, of trade. Virtually no discussion other than the discussion that you have propagated about, uh, about automation. Um, why, why is that? Why has it not found its way onto the into the national debate other than your intrusions? <laughs> My intrusions. You really don't want to hurt a guy, David. Um, I, I, mean, I mean that in a positive way. I know. I, I mean, I want to commend... Interventions. Let's call them interventions. I want to commend uh, David's colleagues at CNN because uh, I think they were uh, responsible for helping push this conversation to the forefront. It's, again, a question of incentives. What are the incentives among politicians or media figures <clears throat> to talk about the fact that we are gutting the most common jobs in this economy. Unfortunately, they have negative incentives attached to this, and there's no accountability if they don't talk about it. I went to Washington, D.C., and I said, how are we gonna help our people manage the fact that we're going through the greatest economic transformation in our history, the fourth industrial revolution? And the three things that folks in D.C. said to me were these. Number one, we cannot talk about this, Andrew. Number two, we should study that further. And number three, we must educate and retrain all Americans for the jobs of the future. And I said, that sounds responsible, but I looked at the studies. The success rates for government-funded retraining programs for the manufacturing workers in the Midwest who lost their jobs were approximately zero to 15%. Half of those people left the workforce and never worked again. And of that group, half filed for disability and we then saw surges in suicides and drug overdoses to a point that America's life expectancy has declined for the last three years in a row. And their response to that was, I guess we'll get better at it. The fact is, nothing happens to the folks in DC if our communities fall apart. They don't lose their jobs. There's a reason why the DC metro area is the richest metro area in, in the country. They succeed whether or not we succeed or fail. The, um on, this, on the issue of automation, after that debate, Paul Krugman wrote a column in the New York Times, I'm sure that you saw it. Uh, he said, uh, af uh, if you th uh, after all, in the late 1940s, America had about 7 million farmers, 12 million production workers in manufacturing. Machinery could and did take over much of the work of those Americans were doing, and people at the time wondered where the new jobs would come from, yet the generation that followed was a golden age for American workers who saw dramatic increases in their income with many entering a rapidly growing middle class, which makes you wonder what Andrew Yang is talking about. 
Yang has based his whole campaign on the premise that automation is destroying jobs en masse and that the answer is to give everyone a stipend. We'll get to that in a second. One that would fall short of what decent jobs pay. As far as I can tell, he's offering an inadequate solution to an imaginary problem, which is in a way kind of impressive. So I, I don't actually know how that he would really thought it was impressive or not, but he was clearly slamming your economic theory. Have you called him? Did you talk to him after that? Uh, <clears throat> we've had informal exchanges, and I've actually asked him to just make a joint public appearance so we can go through the data together. Um, he has yet to take me up on that. But a majority of economists who looked at it after that CNN debate said that I was right, that automation is responsible for the vast majority of the job loss in the manufacturing sector, that our labor force is not adjusting and adapting. Labor force participation has declined to 63%, a multi-decade low, which is not the sign of people adapting. Interstate migration rates have plummeted to a multi-decade low, also a terrible sign of people were adapting. So the numbers tell a very clear story. And one of the great frustrations I have is that otherwise intelligent people will actually refer to the first industrial revolution 100 years ago and say that this is a relevant fact pattern. The first industrial revolution included the origination of labor unions, the implementation of universal high school in 1911, and mass riots that killed dozens of Americans and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. McKinsey, MIT, the Obama White House, all project that this industrial revolution will take place two to three times faster than that one and disrupt a larger number of jobs. So what I said to, to Krugman was, look man, like you have your graphs, I have my graphs, but come with me to the manufacturing communities in the Midwest and tell them with a straight face that automation is not a problem. As a matter of politics, though, it is easier to point fingers at China, at Mexico, uh, than at robots and computer. It is easier, but it's also incorrect. Uh, and when you go to the factories in Michigan or Ohio, you see wall-to-wall -wall robots and machines. Same thing in every Amazon fulfillment center. At this point, you see them in just about every CVS or grocery store. All you have to do is go through the most common jobs in the US economy. Administrative and retail, including call centers, sales clerks, food service and food prep, truck driving and transportation, and manufacturing. Those are half of American jobs, and we know they're shrinking very, very quickly. Only 33% of Americans are college grads, 42% if you include two-year degrees. We are a nation primarily of high school graduates, and the jobs that we fulfill day to day are the jobs that are, the, that are most common and are disappearing before our eyes. Yeah, well, part that does speak to the need, though, to, to up the game in terms of education and training as well. Well, I'm Asian, so I love education. Sorry, it says, that, that, it says, was, that was a little extra. Says, says but, math on his collar there. But that 33% of Americans who graduate from college, that's a relatively stable number. Uh, that number has not shot up in recent years. The six-year completion rate at four-year universities is only 59%. 41% of people who are starting school are not finishing within six years, and many of them are never going to finish. So if we insist that everyone's going to go to college, we're missing the point, because not everyone is going to go to college. What about other kinds of training, though? That is where the big opportunity lies, David. Only 6% of American high school students are in trade programs or apprenticeships or vocational tracks. In Germany, it's 59%. Think about that gulf, 6%, 59%. Meanwhile, there are millions of unfilled positions that would be lucrative, stable jobs for years and years to come. It is very hard to automate away the job of a plumber or an HVAC repair person. Can you imagine what a robot plumber would even look like? It's easier, actually, to automate away the job of an entry-level insurance agent or uh, a job that's going to be occupied by a college graduate. That's one reason why the underemployment rate for recent college graduates right now is 40 to 44%, where almost half of college grads are doing a job that does not require a high school, or does not require a college degree. So we are doing our Way to people. make the audience feel good. It's all right, you all go to a, an excellent school. You'll be in the <laughs> top 6%. 
So this is what we need to in invest in to actually create stable livelihoods for more Americans. You talk, uh, you're obviously your signature proposal is, is universal basic income. Uh, which has huge resonance in this room. Uh, can you, uh, but talk a little bit about that, how you came to it, how it would work. It sounds like most of you know, universal basic income is a policy where every member of a society gets a certain amount of money to meet your basic needs. In my case, $1,000 a month. Now, this is not- Every man, woman, and child, or? It's everyone uh, starting at age 18 until the day you expire. And this is not a new idea, it's not my idea. Thomas Paine was for it at the founding of the country, he called it the citizen's dividend. Martin Luther King fought for it and championed it, called it the guaranteed minimum income for all Americans. It is what he was fighting for when he was assassinated in 1968. I had the privilege of sitting down with Martin Luther King's son in Atlanta after the last debate, and he said that this was the vision that dad was fighting for. Can you believe calling Martin Luther King dad? But, uh, but yeah, it was his dad, so. So this is not a new idea, it's a deeply American idea. Uh, and I became interested in it when I was reading books about the future of work while I was CEO of Venture for America. So I was Mr. Job Creation, helped create several thousand jobs, read books about the future of work, and a lot of them are concerned about the impact of technology over time, and conclude that at some point, you're going to need something like a universal basic income to help people have a path forward. Now, what really hit me, in addition to Donald Trump's victory, was a book by Andy Stern, who used to run the SEIU. You probably know Andy, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, he was the head of the biggest labor union in the country for a generation, and he said, labor is screwed, we need a universal basic income as quickly as possible, and he was proposing $1,000 a month for every American. And this, to me, was a shell shock because this was the first time it wasn't a technologist saying, hey, technology's gonna eat all the jobs. It was the labor leader saying, hey, technology's gonna eat all the jobs. His rooting interest would have been for the opposite. And this confirmed what I saw in the numbers. This confirmed what I saw over seven years in the Midwest and the South. And so I said, we need universal basic income as quickly as possible. Uh, and that's when I decided to run for president. So you say to help people with a path forward, but you know, the, the and, the concern is that it essentially can seem as if you're saying, you're not going anywhere, your job is going away, so we're going to provide income for you. And income alone, as important as it is, is not sustaining. Uh, you know, purpose is sustaining, work is sustaining. So, uh, there's, there are limits to this. I mean, we'll get into what it costs well, in a second. No, but I, I couldn't agree more that the goal has to be to try and create fulfilling jobs and pass forward for people. But here's what most people miss. If you put $1,000 a month in the hands of everyone in a town in Missouri, let's say there are 10,000 adults, that's $10 million more in disposable income every single month. Where will the money go? It will go to car repairs, and daycare expenses, and little league signups, and local organizations, it will end up creating new jobs right there in the community that actually reflect the needs and the values of that community. And one of the examples I use is if there was someone in that town who thought about starting a bakery, maybe the bakery was a bad idea before the dividend, but then with another $10 million in buying power, they decide to open that bakery, they hire two people to work at it, and they know if the bakery fails, they don't die, they don't starve. Uh, so the big misconception is that putting money into people's hands is just about the money. It's actually about the economy that results from a trickle-up configuration. Um, and why do uh, people in your zip code, or mine for that matter, need universal basic income? Why give millionaires and billionaires uh, a, a stipend? Well, the way I would fund this is through a uh, tax that falls most heavily on the people that win the most in our society. Uh, so if you're the Jeff Bezoses of the world, you're gonna be paying millions of dollars into the system, and if I try and send you a thousand bucks a month to remind you you're an American, uh, it's essentially immaterial. 
$1,000 a month is going to be much more meaningful to the 78% of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck or the 47% who can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. Well, why not concentrate on them? Well, part of it is that by making it universal, you destigmatize it, everyone gets it, it's not a rich to poor transfer, it's just seen as a universal right of citizenship. And it's modeled in part over the petroleum dividend that Alaska's had in, in place for almost 40 years, right. where it's also universally popular. Everyone gets it from the richest Alaskan. I have no idea who that is. I should probably look it up. Um, the richest Alaskan to the poorest. Uh, and, and paid for by oil proceeds. Yes. And what is the oil of the 21st century? Technology. Technology, data, AI, self-driving cars and trucks. Who got their data check in the mail last month? Facebook, Amazon, Google, they got our data checks. What they're doing in Alaska with oil money, we can do for the entire country with technology money. And how would it work? How would that work? If we put a value-added tax in place that gives us our fair share of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, eventually every robot truck mile, we generate hundreds of billions of dollars. So a value-added uh, tax on technology products and technology profits. Well, you'd put the value-added tax um, across the economy, but then you'd ramp it up on things like AI and then exempt things like toilet paper, milk, diapers, and the like. So it'd be less regressive. Yes. Um, the, uh, and what, what would the total cost of, the, of, of UBI be? That's been a big discussion. Ayan, I know so, a bunch of you are expanding the math. Uh, so here's the magic. All right, first, if you put in a mechanism where we actually share in the gains of the 21st century economy, generates 800 billion plus in value with a big up arrow attached to it. Because right now, if AI comes out and gets rid of some of the 2.5 million call center jobs in this country, how much value are we going to see? Zero. Because again, Amazon, the trillion dollar tech company, paid zero in taxes. So they develop AI, they get rid of hundreds of thousands of jobs, we still see zero. <coughs> so we have to change that. We get a slice of that. That number starts at 800 billion plus and just keeps on going up. That's step one. Step two, you put this money into our hands, it grows the economy, and all of the new economic activity, the multiplier effect, would generate hundreds of billions of dollars in new tax revenue because of all of the economic activity. Number three, a corrections officer in New Hampshire said this to me. He said, we should pay people to stay out of jail because it costs so much when they're in jail. This was a prison guard who said this. He knows what's happening when someone hits our institutions. We think we're somehow being smart by not investing in our people. We're paying in much more expensive and inhumane ways when they hit our institutions. We can save hundreds of billions of dollars on incarceration, homelessness services, emergency room health care, things that we're spending right now a trillion plus on. And then number four, this is the human element, this is the magic. Studies have shown that if you were to put this money into our hands, we would increase the size of our economy by 700 billion just because of better health outcomes and better education outcomes. This is before you factor in the fact that we'd be free to be more creative, take risks. It would actually reward the kind of work that my wife does at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic. It starts recognizing the uncompensated uh, and unrewarded work that happens every day in our families and communities. Let me talk to you about that. You and I had a little bit of a chat before we came out here um, in that we share an experience of a child with special needs um, and, uh, and partners, wives who have uh, had focused all their energy and attention on caring for that child and, and the other kids because this is a family-wide uh, burden. Tell me about Christopher, your son, who's seven now, I guess, yeah. and how your experience with his autism has impacted on you, on Evelyn, your wife, and your family. First, David, I have to say from our conversation, your wife sounds like a superhero. She is, she is. I ask for no rebuttal time on that. Um, my, my wife's a superhero too. Uh, and I remember when we found out Christopher is autistic, it was this huge relief um, because there had been so much stress and confusion and anxiety in our house um, leading up to that. Uh, and it was Why was Evelyn. there? Because you, he, you, you knew something was wrong and you didn't know what it was? Well, you're a first-time parent, 
so then when something's happening, you think, well, maybe this is normal. Maybe this is how two-year-olds react. Maybe this is how three-year-olds react. Uh, and uh, you're confused. You haven't been through it in a real way. Uh, and one of, one of the, the reasons why I'm for free marriage counseling for any couple that wants it is that the divorce rate for parents with children who have special needs is 80%. Uh, and, I, and I saw the stress. Um, I lived the stress. And it, it just makes me very, very grateful for, uh, for Evelyn, but also really passionate about trying to strengthen what's going on with families around the country. Because I talk to parents who have special needs children, and they are getting nowhere near the support that they deserve. So one of the things that I learned, because my first child was the child who, who had these problems and challenges, well, there are a couple of things I learned that I want to ask about. One, one was that, you know, your child is born and you have all these dreams and visions for what that child is going to do with his or her life. And, and then you, you discover they have these challenges and you have to reorient your thinking. In my case, it was, will she be, ever be happy and healthy? Will yes. she have a happy and healthy day? But, you know, again, you come from a, a family of high achievers. You probably had, you know lofty visions. Uh, how do you make that adjustment? Um, I love this question so much, David, because this is really the underpinning of why I'm running for president. Uh, so if we let the market value us, what is the market going to value your daughter or my son at? We are in this position where we're actually arguing that we should turn coal miners into coders because we have confused economic value and human value where if the market says you have no economic value, then you are valueless, and then we have to try and find some other way to plug you into the machine for you to have any value. And if your town has no value or your, your occupation has no value, then that's on you because we live in a quote-unquote meritocracy, and it's up to you and your hard work and your character. Uh, and when you have something in your family that lets you know how ridiculous all of that is, uh, and how we need to evolve in the way we think about why we're human, what this country should be all about, what we should be measuring in terms of our economic progress. Should we be measuring GDP and corporate profits as our life expectancy is declining because suicides and drug overdoses and depression and anxiety are all at record highs? Or should we be measuring how our kids are doing, whether our environment is sustainable, our mental health and freedom from substance abuse, one of the things I, I said in my book, you all are here at the University of Chicago. You're at like the tippy, tippy top of the educational pyramid. To the extent that winners exist in our quote unquote meritocracy, you are it. And I know that you do not walk around feeling like a winner like 100% of the time. That, you know, that, that you're anxious, you're stressed, you feel like you're in a race. You're not even sure what you're racing towards, but everyone seems to be running their asses off. Uh, and so if this is what it's like for the winners in this system, imagine the people who are uh, kicked to the curb looking up. This is why we need to rewrite the rules of the 21st century economy to work for human beings as quickly as possible. The, uh, you're probably familiar with Bhutan and they don't have a gross a domestic product, they have a gross happiness index that takes into account these broader, is that the sort of thing that you would do? And I'm, I'm proposing an American scorecard that includes GDP, but also includes environmental sustainability and mental health, uh, wellness and life expectancy. If you saw the real measurements, you would see that we have record high levels of anxiety, depression, stress, student loan debt, financial insecurity, Suicides, drug overdoses, all either at record highs or multi-decade highs. So we're following the wrong measurements off a cliff. Uh, we, we have to acknowledge that we're in a mental health depression. We're in a wellness depression. The last time America's life expectancy declined for three years in a row was the Spanish flu of 1918, a global pandemic that killed millions of people. It is not normal for life expectancy to decline in a developed country once, let alone three years in a row. This is nearly unprecedented emergency 
status in terms of the measurements of how we're doing, but instead we have talking heads just telling us about stock market prices that have nothing to do with most of our lives. The, um, where do you, uh, it's interesting to listen to you in these debates and on the uh, trail because um, on, on the one hand there are some very, there are these very bold and progressive proposals, but you've also been skeptical about some that you've heard uh, on that stage, uh, uh, the wealth tax um, on uh, Medi Medicare for All is constituted by Senator Sanders and, uh, and Senator Warren. Why are you skeptical of those proposals? I admire uh, both Bernie and Senator Warren a great, great deal. And I, I think they're trying to drive in the right direction and they're trying to solve the right problems. Uh, we are in the midst of the greatest winner-take-all economy in human history, and we need to balance it out. But to me, if a policy like a wealth tax has been tried in Germany, France, Sweden, Denmark, and half a dozen other <laughs> developed countries, and they all ended up repealing it because of implementation problems and it did not generate anywhere near the revenue that you were projecting, that is a very, very compelling set of data points. Uh, and so, if you're going to pursue that policy in the United States of America, you need a really robust explanation as to why it would work here in a way it did not work in any of those countries. And so to me... Because we're more harmonious here. Because our wealthy are much eager, more eager to pay taxes. <laughs> yes. So we, we should reckon with what has worked and not worked in other societies. Uh, and to me, there's a joke, uh, Willie Sutton, uh, the bank robber, why do you rob the banks? Because that's where the money is. Right. Uh, to me, uh, who are the massive winners? It is the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles. And so if you get a toll there, it's a much more effective way of harnessing the gains of the economy, especially if you're putting the money directly into our hands. And what about Medicare for all? <laughs> the biggest misconception around healthcare right now is this question of, quote unquote, how are we going to pay for it? Americans know we're already paying through the nose for healthcare in so many ways. It's the number one cause of bankruptcy. It raises all of our prices. Millions of us are in jobs that we might want to change, but we can't leave because of health insurance. It's much harder to start a business. It's one reason why business start rates are at multi-decade lows in 80% of the country. Uh, and so there are all of these costs associated with our current healthcare system, plus we're spending twice as much as other countries, 30% of its waste, and the incentives around the system are all designed not to make us stronger and healthier. What are they designed for? To make maximal profits for the drug companies, the device companies, and the private insurers. So we need to realign the incentives of our healthcare system towards our own well-being and try and integrate mental health into physical health because those two things go hand in hand. Um, I am for many of the principles behind the Medicare for All plans that are out there. Um, to me, the challenge is for us to outcompete private insurance and push it out of the market over time without just banning it wholesale. So a public option that would compete. That's right, a public option. That Which would is a pretty similar to the position that Mayor Pete, Biden, and some others have, have taken. Um, I've got some cooler stuff. <laughs> uh, but... In broad sketches, uh, the principles you just described, yes. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier that uh, government stepped in at the end of the, or, or in the midst of the Industrial Revolution and the Gilded Age, and we got universal uh, secondary education, and we got labor laws, and we got uh, supports for people who were being crushed in the. In yeah, the yeah, exactly. that's exactly right. And, uh, but that was a, uh, the, we've now had a sustained 40 years of. Uh, of campaign against government. I mean, it really started with the Reagan revolution, and there was the sense that government uh, itself was the, he, he said, it, government's not the answer, government's the pro solution, government's the problem. Uh, and that has become uh, sort of uh, baked into a lot of the debate uh, since that time. The things you're talking about are big, big structural changes. Uh, and yet we have a deeply divided country, uh, and it's hard, I can tell you from my own experience in the White House, when we tried to do, when we did the Affordable Care Act, how hard it is to do big things. Uh, how do you overcome that? 
I'm proud to say that uh, a poll came out that showed that 10% or more of Donald Trump voters would support me in the general election uh, going forward, which makes me the best candidate to take on Donald Trump and beat him next year. Maybe you could get them to vote in the primary. On the open primary, sure, so <laughs> come on over. Uh, but it also makes me uniquely able to get things done in Washington after I'm president because folks realize that I'm non-ideological, I just want to improve people's lives, and my flagship proposal of the Freedom Dividend is also bipartisan. The state that's had this petroleum dividend for almost 40 years, Alaska, is a deep red conservative state, and it was passed by a Republican governor. Conservatives don't hate economic power in citizens' hands. What they hate is a giant bureaucracy making everyone's decisions. So after we get this dividend into our hands to make us stronger, healthier, less stressed out, mentally healthier, it will start to knit together our political culture because Americans will look up with this very unfamiliar feeling, this feeling where the government did something you love. One's like, wow, like that, that has not happened in, in, in quite some time, and this, this is like directly benefiting me and my life. So after we get that done, then we can galvanize energy around other things that most every American agrees we're overdue on, like infrastructure. Uh, isn't that, that point that you made that pe what people don't like is the notion of, the, of government sort of dictating decisions for them, isn't that uh, part of the reason why Medicare for All is a, a, a politically troubling proposal when you get to a general election because of the absence of choice that it would entail. And I'm, look, I, I've, I've experienced the healthcare system because of my child and all, and all of its inadequacies, but, um, but choice is important to Americans and they don't, want, they don't want a paternalistic government saying this is how you have to do it. Uh, that's exactly why to me the onus is on the government to demonstrate that its public option is a better choice because uh, you don't want to pull the rug out from under, the, um, under millions of Americans who like their coverage, uh, have certain providers that they need to see. You talk about what you, would, what you will do uh, when you are president, and this is again a podcast, I can assert that you are saying it with a completely straight face. Uh, and I know you're, you've had a seriousness of, of purpose here, but what do you think the odds are? You're a, you're, a, you're a guy who's steeped in data and statistics. What do you think the odds are that a year from now uh, that uh, I guess it will be, you, you would be putting a cabinet together if you were president. What are the odds that you'll be putting a cabinet together? The most effective way of measuring that probability is to look at the internet betting markets because those people are putting their actual cash behind who they think is going to wind up. I have a Where are you in Or there? the president. So I am presently in either, I believe I'm in fifth place, and the probability is approximately 8%. So I'm going to suggest to you all. Have you been putting bets down on yourself? I have, I have not. <laughs> Though I probably should. Yeah, because, you should. Because my yeah. odds are even better. Yeah, you than could get yourself to 10%. <laughs> <laughs> So if you think about 8%, how often does that sort of occurrence happen in sports or other environments? Every weekend. The odds of my becoming President of the United States are better than everyone's except for perhaps four other individuals in this country, and they're much higher than most observers believe. And if you don't get there, uh, what, will you, what, what do you hope to have accomplished, and will you continue to try and serve, will you make yourself available? You've, you've made yourself, uh, I think, uh, a popular figure within the, within the Democratic Party. Would you like to serve in an administration if you weren't leading one? The problems are just going to get more and more serious, unfortunately, and I want to be one of the people solving them. Uh, win or lose, I'm still going to be a parent. I'm still going to be a patriot. I'm going to help move the country forward. Well. I Andrew. Andrew Yang, great to be with you. Thank you for being at the Institute of Politics. Thank you for this math lesson. Uh, and we will watch with interest as this campaign goes on. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone.
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.